I'm Tom Hall. Welcome to this encore edition of Midday. Today, a conversation about the New York Times, one of the world's most singular and powerful journalistic enterprises. Adam Nagorny has worked at the Times since 1996, serving as the chief political correspondent in Washington and as the Los Angeles bureau chief. He now covers national politics. In his latest book, Nagorny has captured with exquisite detail and insight the triumphs and the tumult of the world's paper of record between the post-Watergate years in the 1970s through the surprise election of Donald Trump in 2016. This is a terrific work of history and a revealing look inside the machinations of big personalities and irrepressible market forces in a news landscape that has changed dramatically from the pre-digital, firmly entrenched traditions of print to a constantly churning cycle in which reporters and editors jockey for position among AI bots and propagandists. The book is called The Times, How the Newspaper of Records Survived Scandal, Scorn, and the Transformation of Journalism. We spoke in October. Adam Nagorny joined us on Zoom from Los Angeles. Adam, it's been a minute. It's good to talk to you. (laughs) Hey, Tom, how you doing? Thanks for having me. Thank you for this really, really interesting, beautifully written, beautifully structured book. So congratulations. I want to start by asking you uh, about the the quote from Adolf Oakes that I mentioned in the very top of this show. In 1896, he says, to give, we promise that we'll give the news impartially without fear or favor, regardless of party sector interests involved. And it struck me how unusual that was for the time. Uh, in 1854, when Abraham Lincoln was running for the state legislature in Illinois and then the Senate, uh, the U.S. Senate, there were 150 newspapers just in the state of Illinois, and they all had a political agenda. Um, so, so the Times, it seems to me, kind of came out of the gate, at least uh, from the time that the, the Oaks family purchased it, uh, as, a, as a unique animal. Yeah, I think that's right. And I think those words um, still, to a large extent, even in this environment, defines the mission of the times or a lot of people of the time, a lot of people who work at the times and people often associate the times with the motto, all the news that's fit to print. I mean, it just never was true. It sounds good, but that was never true. But that quote that you're using, that really defines, I think, what has defined the times over the past hundred years or so. Is this book a sanctioned history? Does the, does the times have, and uh, did the times have anything to do with it? No, that's a terrific question. This is not an authorized book. Um, uh, they, they had no approval. They didn't see it before it was published. Um, you know, when I first had this idea of doing the book, I went and visited the publisher at the time, Arthur Sulzberger Jr., and asked him if he would cooperate, in other words, sit down for interviews, if I did the book. And he said, let me think about it a little bit. He got back to me and he said, I will do that, but I will not instruct anyone else to sit down with you. You're on your own. Um, what I didn't realize is um, that once the publisher said that he would sit down and talk with me, pretty much everyone else did. So that was very helpful. Why did you choose the period between 1976 and 2016? Um, so there's been other books that have been written before uh, the Gay Talese book, Alex Jones and Susan Tiff's book on the Soulsberger family that I think were pretty excellent. Um, so a lot of that a lot of that time has been covered. Uh, so I kind of decided to start it. I could Gage Lee's book edited in uh, 1969, and I just kind of decided to start it in 
1977 because Watergate had been written about the Pentagon Papers, and it just seemed like a good place to start. It was when the first executive editor that's portrayed here um, uh, becomes executive editor, Abe Rosenthal. I ended it in 2016 because I needed an endpoint for the book, and I realized that you you need time and perspective, but also candor from the from the principles and archives that, as, as you probably saw, are critical to this book. And I didn't think that I would have much to add to anything post-2016. That's not to say that's not a critical time in the Times history. I think it is, but I think that someone else needs to cover that period probably in another 10 years or so. Uh, of the many things that impress me about this work is the incredible level of detail. Um, you had access to people's emails, to people's personal journals, to people's uh, recollections, because a lot of people did speak with you directly, uh, and it seems like they spoke with you at length. Um, when you would talk about meetings that people would have, you would not only say that they met for dinner, you'd say where they met, what the restaurant was, whether it was the east side or the west side, uh, what they had, what they had to eat, you know, uh, what was on the menu, uh, uh, that level of detail. I mean, you, you know, you're a reporter. You're you're used to uh, supplying the 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 color, the background. Um, but 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 why why do you think that is so important for a story like this? That's such a sweeping story over such a, a long period of time. Um, I, I think it's really important when you tell a story like this to put people into the scene you were describing and put them into it as accurately as possible. So I could have said that you know these two editors met at a restaurant in Midtown. I thought I just made it more real and more accessible to talk about where they ate and what they had for dinner, if that was possible. And and I think there's always a danger for journalists, I guess for authors too, in being overly detailed, like to just kind of like show off. And I hope I didn't, um, I hope I didn't do that. There's one detail in here where I talk about, um, and I'm going to say that I think this was a good detail, actually. When I talked about how the New York Times used to be delivered to the home of Max Frankel, who lived in Riverdale, who was an executive editor back in the late 80s, early 90s. And I included in there the cost, the annual cost of it. I think it was like $9,000, just because I thought it really gave a sense of like, this was not some small thing about sending some kid up in a, in a subway. This was a real expense. So I, I just think that those kind of details are what you need to bring either a book or a story to life. And it's just always the way I've tried to write. The the enormous number of people you spoke with, uh, you, you've worked with them in some cases. I mean, you're, you're still a, an employee of the Times, uh, at least as far as I've heard. You know, yeah. now, now that the book is out, I hope that continues to be the case. <laughs> but I wonder, I mean, have you have you talked to folks uh, who you did interview, uh, whether they're current or former employees of the Times? And have you gotten reactions from your your current and former colleagues? So, Tom, one reason I ended the book in 2016, as much as possible about people who are no longer there, um, to avoid those kind of uncomfortable moments, there are two exceptions to this. One is I write about the current publisher, A.G. Sulzberger, but in an earlier um, role that he served at the paper, in particular writing this innovation report. And then I write about Carolyn Ryan, who's now a managing editor, just as her involvement in some of the stories that were broken. But generally, um, I, with few exceptions, I was writing about people who are no longer there. So it's not like I'm walking into you know the Times building and running to someone that 
that I interviewed in the book because that would be very uncomfortable. So I, I for the most part, it's been okay. Um, I've heard reaction from, I think, most but not all the executive editors. Um, and it's generally been, I mean, I actually let them speak for themselves, but it's generally been that I did a fair job in representing what they said and what they did. Um, one of the executive editors made two points that I think is two criticisms um, that I think are worth sharing. The first one I agree with, the first one I don't. The first one was he said that um, I should have talked about WikiLeaks and how they collaborated collaborated with the New York Times in writing stories, um, I guess, in the first decade of the 2000s. Hmm. And how important, de- how important a development that was for a newspaper that was always like above working with anyone else. And had such a high self-regard, they would never cooperate with someone else. And I thought, that's a really good point. Um, the other argu- argument he made is he thought that the book didn't really capture, I think as he put it, the joy of working in the newsroom. Uh, joy is probably not the best word, but, and I think it did. I mean, I think you'll see, and this is covering tragedies. I think it gets across the drama and why people want to work for a newspaper like the New York Times, where the truth is you make less money than you might make someplace else. Um, and I do it, I think, in talking about the coverage of 9-11. I do it in talking about the coverage of the Challenger explosion. I do it in writing about how the newspaper broke a story that led to the um, to the forced ouster, to the resignation of Elliot Spitzer, a New York governor. So I hope when you read it, um, you'll see that it does get, a, it's not just like, you know, internal fighting, that it really gets across what makes the New York Times such a cold place to work. It's midday. I'm Tom Hall. My guest is Adam Nagorny. His new book is called The Times, How the Newspaper of Record Survived Scandal, Scorn, and the Transformation of Journalism. And Adam, when it comes to the the joy, as you say, in the newsroom, it certainly comes through the passion, the talent, uh, the dedication uh, of all the people uh, up and down the ladder uh, at the Times. But you write, for example, uh, early in the book that newsrooms as a rule are unhappy places, roiled by self-doubt, anger, competitiveness, resentment, and vindictiveness. And later in the book, you say journalists are by their nature self-reliant, secretive, insecure, competitive, sensitive, and suspicious. To which I say, well, guilty as charged. But uh, <laughs> you know, uh, it, 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 do you think do you think the the newsroom of the New York Times is a, is a fundamentally unhappy place? And is that one of the things that makes the New York Times different from all other newsrooms? Do you think all newsrooms share that uh, particular uh, assessment? I mean, if I can if I can make a play on an old phrase, an unhappy journalist is a happy journalist, and a happy journalist is an unhappy journalist. I, I do think that's very integral to the newsroom at the Times. And from my experience, it's integral to every newsroom because you're dealing with people who need, and I include myself here, who need the instant gratification of, uh, in the old days, a front page story or recognition or something like that. And it is very competitive. I don't think that contradicts the fact that working on a big story, another example, the Monica Lewinsky story, is um it's fun. I hate to use the word fun because it sounds cruel, but it's fun and it's part of the joy of the job. But the, it is, you know, newsrooms are very, 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 you know, competitive. And I think for editors in particular, it's up or out, right? Like people who want to be editors, you know, just keep moving up until they either succeed or they fail. And obviously that's two of the big stories in this in this book. 
And, you know, on the other hand, you write um, that it's referred to uh, by many in the newsroom as Mother Times, um, <laughs> even though it's one of the most brutal newspaper cultures in the country. You write uh, it's one that nonetheless had the compassion that came from being a family business that wrapped its arms around a reporter burdened by a health crisis or a dying spouse. So there are lots of examples, and they're in this book, uh, of, of you know, the management and the people in the newsroom being very empathetic and, and helpful to people who are going through personal crises. But uh, it also uh, was a reminder uh, to me, and I think it'll be a reminder to, to all readers, that this is a family business, isn't it? I mean, from 1896, the same family has controlled it. That's right. And, you know, um, I think that's what makes the New York Times so singular now. I think it's the last major, it is, the last major family-owned paper. And I think that contributes to the culture of the place in many ways. Um, one way one way is how it treats, to some extent, not, I'm not sure it's as true as it once was, it's uh, employees compassionately as members of a family, um, as you quoted there before. In another way, because it's a family newspaper, the family is invested in the success of the paper, I would argue, not only financially, but also as a successful news organization. And that the, um, the, the, the value of the Salzberger family and its self-esteem is influenced by the fact that the New York Times is you know, such a powerful force in American media. And that is why at key points over the course of the paper's history, including in this, in this book, the paper facing the kind of financial crisis that newspapers always felt, always faced, typically responded by just pouring pouring more money into the news product. There's a um, a famous quote that's attributed to Abe Rosenthal, though other people have claimed it as well, which is that we put more tomatoes in the soup rather than water down the soup. Um, and I think that says a lot about the New York Times culture. If you've just joined us, my guest is Adam Nagorny, the former Los Angeles bureau chief of the New York Times. We're listening to a conversation we had in October about his latest book, The Times, How the Newspaper of Records Survives Scandal, Scorn, and the Transformation of Journalism. We'll have more with Adam Nagorny on the other side of a quick break. This is an archive edition of Midday. Because our show was recorded earlier, we aren't able to take any calls or online comments today. I'm Tom Hall. Stay with us. Welcome back to this archive edition of Midday. I'm Tom Hall. We're listening to a conversation I had in October with the journalist and author Adam Nagorny. He's the co-author of a seminal history of the gay rights movement called Out for Good. He's been a reporter and bureau chief for the New York Times for 17 years. He's currently covering national politics. His latest book is an insightful history of the last 40 years or so of the paper, a tumultuous time that saw the fortunes of the times rise to new heights and fall to some devastating lows. The book is called The Times, How the Newspaper of Records Survived Scandal, Scorn, and the Transformation of Journalism. Because our program was pre-recorded, we aren't able to take any calls or online comments today. 
Here's more of my conversation with Adam Nagorny. When the the New York Times uh, started its digital uh, dimension, uh, I was fascinated to learn that it was a separate company controlled by the Times that was financed by an IPO, um, very different than the rest of the newsroom. Yeah, they were trying to, there were people involved in digital who were trying to keep it as separate as possible for the newsroom. And I think, the, as I recall, the publisher also wanted it to be separate from the newsroom just to allow it to develop. And I think even more striking than the separate corporate structure, at least for a time being, was that they put them in an entirely different building a couple of blocks away. And they're different people. They wanted them to be more innovative and to try more things. And um, it, it shows how different the it, it helped explain why I think ultimately digital succeeded. It took a while, as you can read, but ultimately why? Because they encouraged this um, this branch of the organization to just do things and try different things that weren't accepted, frankly, in many parts of the early newsroom. And of course, it changes the the whole dynamic, the relationship. I mean, you write at one point, uh, to, again, towards the end of the book, that the relationship between an editor and reporters is an exercise in power, leverage, and manipulation. So that, I think, is true. <laughs> you know, a reporter yeah. does a story, yeah. argues for certain things, the editor pushes back. But then when you have the the added dynamic of a difference, literally geographic difference, the hippodrome on one uh, hand and then the regular newsroom on the other, as you say, a couple of blocks apart. Um, it just adds even more confusion. What, what do you think the, you know, in those early days, uh, what, what, what was the effect of that dynamic with all these competing forces uh, thrown together in such a, a random way? You know, the truth of the matter is that many people in the newsroom, in the old print newsroom, didn't take digital that seriously and looked at it as kind of a lark. And even someone like Joe Lelyveld, who is one of the executive editors, arguably one of the great executive editors, talked about how at the end of the day, he didn't think digital would be very important or as long lasting as a print newspaper. Abe Rosenthal, this is even before this period, you know, said that, well, I'm sure that someday people will be reading the New York Times on a television screen. That's the way he put it. But they'll always want to read it on paper. So that was a big part of the um, of the ethos um, in the newsroom as developed as digital was coming up. I should be clear, Tom, that there were people who were, I guess, who saw the future, including Arthur Salzberger Jr., who always thought that the paper would eventually become digital and tried to push it that way. But for the time being, it was a real divide, and um, people on digital really kind of, I think, resented people in the newsroom, and people in the newsroom just didn't take them seriously until a tipping point was reached when people began to realize that digital was where it's at, that, like, um, you'll see at one point Jill Abramson, who's an executive editor, or she might have been managing editor at the time, talks about how the um, the digital front page had taken over the New York Times front page as what was really important. She said that the editors of that of the digital section at the time were more powerful than the executive editor and the managing editor at the time. So it was a long, painful process um, that eventually resulted in the two wings being put back together. And of course, digital is the is the way that all newspapers, local uh, or national, the Wall Street Journal, the Washington Post is national uh, examples. But, you know, here in Baltimore, the Baltimore Banner is a fully digital uh, enterprise. It's, they, they don't print a, a newspaper. The Baltimore Sun still does print uh, an edition. But again, I think uh, many more people read it 
online, that changes the dynamic uh, and changes the the power structure as you uh, observe. Once it becomes a subscription business model as opposed to an advertising business model, the economic power shifts from the people buying advertising to the people who are subscribing. Um, does that have any impact? Any Does it make any difference to the journalistic product? You know, I think it does. I think that's a huge deal. And I think that's one of the things that's still being worked out at the times and would be subject to the next book. Because when you're sort of reliant on advertisers for circulation, for excuse me, for revenue, um, you can just uh, afford to alienate one and have them um, sort of drop their advertising. And that has happened a, a number of times over the years. But in this case, the paper is reliant on subscribers for the most part, and therefore is more, let's just say in general, more tempted by stories that might get more readership, more potentially responsive. I'll, I'll say what I'm saying potentially in a second. Potentially responsive to pressure campaigns from people who don't like, say, coverage of you know the Trump or campaign or all this stuff that you know about. Um, and I think that the Times so far has done a fairly good job of walking this difficult road. But I think this is one of the things that still need to be worked out. I mean, I, I argue in the book that the paper has unlike any, unlike other papers in the country, except for maybe the Wall Street Journal, which is different, figured out a way to survive economically in this digital world. I think it's still figuring out how to do it in a way that protects the, without fear or favor, the standards that you're talking about, that makes the times the times. I think for the most part, it's succeeding, but it's a challenge for this paper and any other paper that's going to be digital first. In this bifurcated political uh, polarity that uh, we all uh, live in these days. Um, opponents of the time, people who are the times, people who are critical of the paper cont uh, contend that it's simply too liberal. Um, you write about uh, a guy who served as the public editor, kind of the, the internal watchdog of the Times, a guy named Dan Okren, uh, mm -hmm. who wrote a column uh, which he began, is the New York Times a liberal newspaper? Of course it is. You say that there's some uh, polling that shows that some 84% of paid subscribers to the New York Times do describe themselves as liberal. Um, how do you respond when someone says, well, I don't trust the New York Times. It's just, it's too liberal. Um, you know, I think the paper, just back in for one second, Oakland always uh, regretted writing that headline and that lead um, because it was so, he said that it gave uh, opponents uh, fodder to criticize the paper. And I think that's always been a problem and that Republicans and conservatives who wanted to discredit the Times have sort of built on that to discredit the Times credibility, leading right up to Donald Trump. Clearly, the editorial page is mostly liberal. Um, I Clearly, the readership is mostly liberal. Remember, it's based in New York City, even though it has a national audience now. Um, to some extent, its choice of stories reflects that, I think. But there's also a real effort to keep the paper, the paper's news pages, right, not the editorial pages, as down in the middle as possible. Um, obviously, to you know, mixed success. Um, the editorial pages, you've seen them uh, over the years hire more and more conservative thinking columnists to try to have a more diverse page. But, you know, it is it is what it is. And the thing is, like, all these forces that we're talking about, mixed with the fact that there is an incentive 
for conservatives and Republicans to try to discredit the Times by dismissing it as a liberal rag or whatever the phrase of the era is, um, is, is a difficult combination. The book is called The Times, How the Newspaper of Records Survived Scandal, Scorn, and the Transformation of Journalism. The author is my guest, Adam Nagorny. It's midday. I'm Tom Hall. Let's go to the phones. We have Dwayne on the line from Curtis Bay. Thanks for your call. Yes, I've been looking forward to this guest. I am a New York Times addict, been reading it since the 1960s. I first saw it and learned about it when I was a reporter at the Collegian, the newspaper at Baltimore City College High School. And we modeled our award-winning newspaper for years on the New York Times. One of our early reporters before my time was later a famous columnist and commentator at the New York Times, and Russell Baker, who was also uh, on Masterpiece Theater. That's great. So, Dwayne, do you have a a, a question for Adam? Yes. Uh, I've been comparing uh, various uh, books on media. I have a shelf of books about the New York Times and the Washington Post. So I was wondering what made his book that much different from many of the others that have been published about the Times history, like David Halberstam and some of the others. All right. Thanks for the call, Dwayne. I yep. appreciate it. Adam, what do you think? Thanks, Dwayne. That's a good question. Um, I think the difference is that it's two-part. One is that I'm writing about an era that has not been mostly written about before in a, in a book sort of way. But second of all, when I first started working on this project, I did not know how the how this story would end. I did not know whether by the time this book was published, the Times would even exist or would exist in a really diminished form. And there is an arc to this book that I think some of the other books, as great as they are, didn't have just because of the period they were writing about. So there is hopefully a story where questions and challenges are raised and described and ultimately resolved. And that is, I think, the big difference here. Um, Gay Talisa's book is tremendous. If you go, And I think I'm sure it's on your shelf. Um, if you go back and read it, it, and I've read it a couple of times, it still is just a tremendous part, piece of writing and reporting and insight. And I mean, it's gay to least, right? Um, but I think the advantage that I had, the only advantage I had was that there was a shift. There was a storyline to follow from the start to the end. And I think that's what, what makes this book different from the others, which is not to say it's better at all. I'm saying it's different. Well, it's certainly really good, and I haven't read all the others by any means, so I'm I'm not uh, you know equipped to make a cogent analysis. But uh, this is a terrific read. One of the things Thank that uh, also just really uh, impressed me was the the uh, sort of obsession with attracting talent. Uh, one of the reasons the the digital side wanted to have a, a initial public offering to raise money was because they were afraid that they weren't going to attract the best digital folks to that side of the operation uh, if they didn't have uh, salaries that were going to be uh, you know attractive to them. I was really intrigued uh, to learn about Alexandra McCallum, uh, who about ten years ago developed the New York Times cooking app, um, and she didn't even cook. I mean, how did, how did they figure out that she would be a great person to run the cooking app, which I love to cook, and I uh, refer to the cooking app all the time. Yeah, I do too. Um, you know, they had an eye for talent, and they were also looking for someone who was younger. I think she was the youngest uh, mass editor that there had been, I think. Don't hold me to that. Um, 
who could look at the world in a different way. And it didn't matter that she didn't know how to cook. She did understand digital and she understood how to market stuff like that. And I, I think that she was, a, as you see in the book, a big player in how the paper changed. Um, you, you raise an interesting point. You know, over the years, the Times had such a outsized reputation that people would come there kind of regardless of salary. I know people who came to the Times from the Los Angeles Times, as I recall, who took a pay cut to come there. I mean, seriously. And um, I don't know if that's the case anymore. I think the Times is still a huge deal, but it's a much more competitive marketplace. And I don't think that just saying you can work in the New York Times alone is enough to get people to come. Um, the point you raised with digital was they were facing a situation where people were um, paying a lot at other digital organizations to hire people and it was getting hard for the times to keep people. So there was a salary difference between people who worked on the digital side and people who worked on the news side. And I think one of the really interesting and revealing, I think, conflicts that I write about is an exchange between, this is again, because I had access to all these personal papers, between Joe Lellybeld, who was an executive editor at the time, and other executives at the paper about how much they were looking to pay executives on the digital side. And he was really understandably upset about it. And he said this whole, he said something like, we'll look back at this one day and really regret that we did this. It's unseemly. But that's what that's what they were facing at the time. It was a real problem. You write about some of the crises that uh, occurred, some of the stories that uh, the Times got wrong. Jason Blair, who was a, a fabulist, making up stuff, uh, writing about things that he didn't, you know, didn't actually report on. Um, Judith Miller and her uh, involvement in, uh, you, you know, uh, having a, a big influence about uh, America's decision to go into war with Iraq. You write about Wen Ho Lee, a Chinese uh, scientist who. Uh, was accused by the Justice Department of uh, being a spy. We have a couple of emails, uh, one from Peter, another from Michael, and they have to do with the firing of James Bennett, or the, uh, the uh, I guess he resigned officially, but um, uh, James Bennett was an editor in the uh, editorial uh, on the op-ed page, and he published uh, an op-ed by Senator Tom Cotton. Uh, and uh, this is one of the, the dilemmas that you write about there. Uh, Michael says, I spent most of my career as a reporter, and whenever I was confronted by someone I was interviewing about my paper's editorial stance, I said that the newsroom had nothing to do with the editorial pages. This was a sacred wall that Dean Becquet's action breached. Becquet was the executive editor at the time. Talk about the Tom Cotton uh, affair. You know, this is an example. When I was talking before about ending the book in 2016, is because this is a perfect example of an event that I think is hard to analyze when you're right in the middle of it. Like, what does it mean for the long-term development of the New York Times? Um, so I kind of avoid explaining or talking about what it means because I, I just don't, I don't think we know yet. And I learned that, I really began to appreciate that when I was going back and talking about researching again. For example, the, the Judith Miller stories on uh, WMD, Weapons of Mass Destruction, that led the country into um, it helped lead the country into the war in Iraq or the Jason Blair fabulous uh, making up stuff. I think those are really, you know, with the benefit of time, Tom, I could talk about what happened, why it happened and why, in my opinion, it was so damaging to the times and it took a long time for it to get past it. I'm not even sure it's past the Judith Miller. Um, I'm just using her as a shorthand to talk about WMD coverage. Um, the Bennett, the editorial stuff, um, 
I, I first of all, that was between the, the publisher, A.G. Sulzberger and Bennett. And I just think we need time to figure that out. Do I think that's going to be a major um, chapter in the next book on The New York Times? I think so. Am I sure? I'm not 100 percent sure. I think so. Same thing with eliminating the sports department. There's a lot of stuff going on that's going to be really interesting for whoever gets to write this next book. But, I mean, on a certain level, it's kind of simple that the editorial page of the New York Times or any newspaper is simply separate and distinct from the reporting pages. Uh, Social media has blurred those lines uh, more than occasionally. Uh, And there are a number of reporters, including some for the Times. I think of Maggie Haberman, for example, who used to tweet much more frequently than she does now. Uh, So we were hearing not only we were reading Maggie's terrific reporting about the Trump administration uh, and Trump himself, and then we were seeing uh, for a time quite a quite a few tweets uh, sort of weighing in on on what she was writing about. We see less of that now, at least from Maggie and from some others. But um, in the in the case of this Tom Cotton op-ed, it was it was an op-ed. It it wasn't a news story, uh, and it and it uh, expressed a point of view that a lot of people disagreed with. He was talking about uh, in deploying troops uh, on the streets of America uh, to uh, to quelch some of the uh, Black Lives Matter protests that followed the death of George Floyd. Um, I guess it's not as simple as, uh, you know, the the editorial is one side and the reporting side is the other side? I think it is that simple. I think there's a really firm line between the two uh, parts of the newspaper, the editorial side and the newsroom side. And it was extremely unusual that you saw so much public criticism or, excuse me, criticism from some people in the newsroom of that decision that, you know, it was, I think, almost unprecedented. But I do think that's still the culture and that's still the aspiration of the paper. And that's what I mean when I say that we'll, you know, see whether that was a one-off or whether that was something really significant. We have not seen anything um, since then um, like that. So, and I think that, again, from what I can observe, since I've not been reporting on this period, the publisher and the executive editor has been trying to make sure they find the right sort of medium ground to make sure that, there, there is that separation between the two sides. The author and journalist Adam Nagorny, we're talking about his new book, The Times, How the Newspaper of Records Survived Scandal, Scorn, and the Transformation of Journalism. We'll have more with Adam Nagorny after a quick break. It's midday. I'm Tom Hall. Stay with us. Welcome back to this archive edition of Midday. I'm Tom Hall. If you've just joined us, my guest is Adam Nagorny, a former Los Angeles bureau chief for the New York Times, who's now a national political correspondent. He's the author of two books. One is a definitive history of the LGBTQ plus community's social justice efforts called Out for Good, The Struggle to Build a Gay Rights Movement in America, which he wrote with the late Dudley Clendenin. Adam's latest book examines the multi-pronged evolution that took place between the 1970s and 2016 at the New York Times, one of the most, if not the most, influential news organizations in the world. It's called The Times, How the Newspaper of Records Survived Scandal, Scorn, and the Transformation of Journalism. Because our conversation was recorded earlier, 
We aren't able to take any new calls or online comments today. So, Adam, uh, apropos of the conversation we were having just before the break about the separation between the editorial page and the reporting page, we have an email from a listener, Blake, who says, if the Times or the Wall Street Journal are printing news, why do they need to be politically biased? Political moderation often holds great wisdom. Um, you're covering politics, national politics, in a in a very bifurcated, uh, polarized uh, political climate. Um, do you do you strive in your own reporting for the New York Times, you know, to be to be moderate in your coverage uh, of a Donald Trump uh, or, uh, you know, Ron DeSantis uh, or a Joe Biden? Um, I do. That's always been the way I've written. And I think that's true with uh, not the entire political team, certainly the vast majority of it. You know, Donald Trump is a complicated case. He's not your typical politician because he is so given to making stuff up and lying and being destructive. So he's more difficult to do your traditional down the middle. Um, I, 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 I'm very careful about uh, doing what used to be called false equivalency, like saying, well, you know, Donald Trump did such and such, but so did Joe Biden, because I, I don't think that's always true. So um, I don't want to write stories that I think have any kind of bias to them. I think it's OK to have a point of view that is informed by your reporting and any expertise you have, as opposed to an opinion, if you know what I mean, in terms of the difference. And I think that is the general aspiration of people who cover politics. I, I feel a little bit uncomfortable talking about The Wall Street Journal because I don't work there, but obviously um, but for my own observation, their news pages are the same way. Obviously not their editorial pages. But again, as you said, Tom, their editorial pages is on almost every newspaper is completely different from the newsroom or should be. Uh, the current uh, publisher, A.G. Sulzberger, wrote a long piece in the Columbia Journalism Review uh, entitled Journalism's Essential Value. And he addressed the notion of objectivity. Uh, and lack of bias in reporting. And, of course, one of the old saws is that, you know, there's no such thing as completely, uh, as, as anybody being completely objective. We all have our implicit biases. We all have our uh, baggage that we, we carry into the newsroom or wherever we're, we're publishing stories. Um, is objectivity, I mean, you, you write that uh, Dean Becquet, for example, uh, who was the editor, the executive editor when Mr. Trump was uh, elected, uh, took the New York Times newsroom by surprise. They had to change gears very quickly. They had prepared stories about Hillary Clinton being the first woman president, and none of those stories ran. Um, but he said that he was uh, determined not to be the, the, the voice of the anti-Trump crowd. Do you think he, he pulled that off? Um, again, with a caveat that we need time to figure it out because it's another four years. My impression was that he, for the most part, did pull, pull that off. We're going to find exceptions going back and looking, of course, because newspaper newspapering is a daily act of invention. Um, and sometimes you get it right and sometimes you get it wrong, but as long as you're generally moving in the right direction. And I think the paper um, was, is moving generally in the right direction. And I think the aspiration was laid out in that Sulzberger uh, uh, essay that you cited. I mean, I thought that was a very clear um, expression of what he saw and what I think a lot of people, everyone in the newsroom, I think, sees is how the paper deals with those kind of issues, including the issues of quote-unquote objectivity. 
The Times, How the Newspaper Records Survives Scandal, Scorn, and the Transformation of Journalism. That's the book we're talking about. The author is my guest, Adam Nagorny. It's midday. I'm Tom Hall. And Adam, you talk a lot about uh, diversity uh, efforts at the Times and how they were uh, slow to uh, have a diversified newsroom, and there's still plenty of work to do in that regard. Let's talk about Gerald Boyd, uh, who was the first uh, African-American to be on the masthead, uh, and his story uh, intersects with that story of Jason Blair we mentioned before the break, the guy who uh, wrote tons of stories. I think you say 750 stories over a five-year period. Um, he had a drug addiction at the time. He was addicted to cocaine, uh, and he mm-hmm. was making a lot of that stuff up. Uh, Gerald Boyd was working with Jason Blair as his editor. Um, talk about how that whole uh, that whole situation evolved. How, how is it that the New York Times allowed somebody to make stuff up for five years? Um, you know, it's, it, it's interesting about it. Let's leave the Gerald Boyd stuff out for a moment. It's interesting about the culture of a newspaper. Um, when I was interviewing uh, a, manager, a former managing editor uh, who was overseeing the Jason Blair case that led to his dismissal, he said, um, I have to figure out a way to put this as acceptable for public radio. But he said that um, he said that we had this big book on ethics and standards. Nobody ever thought you had to tell people not to make stuff up. Right. Like it just wasn't in people's wheelhouse. I mean, obviously you'd had Janet Cook, but people just weren't thinking about it. And for a long time, Jason Blair was delivering the goods. He was this young, energetic, always on call, always ready to do stuff, writing really splashy stories. Well, it turned out at a certain point that a lot of those splashy stories were um, wrong or fabricated. And there were some warning signs. And I think that people ignored them. Um, for a long time, J- um, Jason is a black man and Gerald was too. Um, and a lot of people tried to say that Gerald was his main protector. I don't think that's true. Um, and this was one of the difficult things we have to kind of unravel in the book. And I think he always resented the fact that people kind of said that, you know, because he was black, he was protecting a black reporter. I, I don't think that's quite right. Um, Jason would try to present himself, present Gerald as a mentor of his. I don't think that's quite right either. But he was encouraging of his career and helped him at key points. Um, I'm a little bit uncomfortable uh, interpreting that entirely in a racial context because I think it's more complicated than that. But that was part of one of the things that was going on. I mean, Howell Raines, who was executive editor at the time, also encouraged him and wrote him all these great notes about what a great job he was doing, notes that he would copy to all the editors. So, of course, that gave Jason more power in the newsroom and made it harder for people to go after him. Um, the the tragedy, if you will, of Jason Blair was one of the things, one of the main factors that led to the publisher dismissing uh, Howard Raines as executive editor and along with him, Gerald Boyd as managing editor. It's a tragic story involving both of them for different reasons, but it's really one of the striking stories that I try to tell in this book. When it comes to gender equity at the New York Times, uh, there's been more than one lawsuit uh, about uh, pay scales for women uh, as opposed to men. Uh, they go back uh, decades. Um, Jill Abramson, the first female executive editor of the New York Times, again, an interesting choice, uh, not not your, your standard uh, typical uh, biography or profile of an executive editor, uh, at least up to the point where uh, you know, the people who preceded her. Um, talk about Dean Baquet's 
uh, uh, ascendancy to the executive editorship. Uh, the publisher had to fire the first woman uh, who was uh, in that position, uh, but replaced her with the first African-American executive editor. That was a tumultuous time, too, wasn't it? Yeah, it was. Um, you know, Jill Emerson was, in my opinion, a, just a brilliant journalist and a, and a great reporter. Um, she came into the newsroom at a time when the influence of the business side, when there was more <clears throat> focus on getting audience, the whole kind of change that we talked about that began years before was really coming into its own. And, you know, she told me that, like, as soon after she took the job, she hated it. She just hated the meetings and, you know, and I think that the publisher took a chance in appointing her. He, he admired her. He wanted to appoint a woman. And then in the first year that he sent her an evaluation, we, we got copies of their his evaluations of her. He talked about how she's doing a terrible job. Excuse me, how she's doing a great job. Um, the next year he wrote about how she's doing a terrible job and he's kind of laid the groundwork for dismissing her. Um, I think that she would have been probably a successful executive editor in an earlier incarnation of the Times, but in this time, it just it just didn't work. And um, he fired her and brought in Dean Baquet. And before he did that, uh, one of his top uh, executives of the newspaper, Mark Thompson, who you might know now know as head of CNN, um, said to her, "Do you really want to be in a position where you're firing the first woman executive editor of the New York Times?" And Arthur was like, well, we're replacing her with the first black man, a black person who would be executive editor of the New York Times. So it was kind of a collision of, as you said, decades of tension and unfulfilled promises on racial and gender equity, equity at the paper. And uh, you write, you know, with, with such wonderful detail about all of the executive editors that served uh, from the 70s through 2016. We're not going to have time to go into them now, but it, it just shows the importance of the executive editor of an organization like the New York Times. That These people really were able to uh, put a very strong imprint about how how the Times functioned, uh, the kinds of stories and, and the way the stories were covered uh, around the world. Um, just we got a minute or so left um, mm -hmm. in the current climate. Uh, the Washington Post, for example, just a few weeks ago uh, announced a buyout program. Uh, they said that their audience is down 28 percent. Subscriptions are down 15 percent. That brings up to about 2.5 million. The New York Times has about 10 million. Uh, the print revenue is down. The digital ads, their uh, revenue from that is down. The Washington Post seems to be going through a difficult period. Is the New York Times going through something similar? What, what's the climate for these national uh, papers? I mean, the paper has, and I'm using the words <clears throat> shorthand, has reinvented itself in a really uh, fundamental kind of way that I think We'll look back at it and say makes it more than just a newspaper and therefore makes it more marketable to more people. So you mentioned cooking before. That's a big deal app. A lot of people go to the New York Times for cooking. People go for games. People go for wire cutter. It still has, in my opinion, the kind of journalism that has always distinguished the paper, but it's a lot more than just a news source. And, you know, there was a lot of worry that after Trump happened, we saw this big bump in um, in circulation that there would be. That once Trump moved on, I realize he hasn't quite moved on, but once he moved on for the presidency, that we see a drop in circulation at the New York Times. That did not happen. I think that is why. The, the, and the, the challenge for the Post 
I think, and I don't want to, you know, pontificate here, is that I wonder if there is a market in this country for more than one subscriber digital newspaper that appeals to a national audience the way the New York Times does. I think the Times has unlocked the key, again, Tom, from a financial business perspective on how to be a successful digital news organization in this era that we're in. Um, and I think it's going to be hard, not impossible, but hard for other organizations to do the same thing. Adam Nagorny, his terrific new book is called The Times, How the Newspaper of Records Survived, Scandal, Scorn, and the Transformation of Journalism. Adam, congratulations on the book, and uh, thanks for your time. Thank you for a great discussion. I really appreciate it, Tom. Be good. Adam Nagorny, on this archive edition of Midday, we talked about his latest book, The Times, How the Newspaper of Records Survived, Scandal, Scorn, and the Transformation of Journalism. I'm Tom Hall. Thanks for listening. Have a great day.